Why is Jesus the Isn't the Bible full God? of contradictions? What about those who never heard of Don't all religions basically why is the Bible so special? Are there answers to these questions? Are there answers to these questions? Well, as Jonathan has already welcomed you, if uh, you're newer with us, my name is Brian and I have the privilege to serve alongside Jonathan and the other pastors here at the church. And uh, if you've been with us, I also want to thank you for um, your prayers as uh, I had the privilege of being uh, one of 17 that returned this week from our medical missions trip to Kenya, uh, where I've been asked numerous times, you know, what did I experience and what did I learn? And uh, while obviously those um, understandings are numerous, I would say the biggest takeaway uh, for me would be the understanding that I gained while there regarding, you could say, the gap in understanding that I believe we have here back home as to how much of an impact you all as First Christian Church are making in Kenya. Through your regular support, through the support of the Kazirs, and through these annual mission trips, the way in which you all are encouraging and furthering the church in Kenya is noteworthy. It's noticed. They know who Decatur First Christian Church is over there. And so um, it was just an honor to be a part of that and just thankful to Pastor BJ, who's leading us on this, and, and John uh, Guyman and Brenda Eden and uh, all that they're doing to lead us as a congregation to continue to make that impact. And then one other thing that I've got to bring up because I think it's actually been asked more than uh, my learnings of the, the trip, and that is I guess it got out on Facebook that out of the 34 uh, medical and personal bags that were destined to end up in Kenya, the one bag that didn't make it uh, was my own personal bag. And so, yeah, it's real funny. And so, um, in, in, in all actuality, I was, I was very privileged to have good teammates who were very generous in sharing uh, new shirts and new socks and all these things. Too. In all honesty, by about midweek when my bag showed up, I was kind of bummed because the stuff I was getting from my teammates far surpassed the quality <laughs> of that which I had packed for myself. So really in the long run, I feel like I came out ahead. So it worked out just fine. Um, but today we continue specifically our series, uh, if you've been with us, uh, Room for Doubt, where we have been looking each week at tough questions and doubts uh, in regards to the Christian faith. And I want to start by sharing a quote from a gentleman by the name of Lee Strobel, who you may or may not be familiar with, who uh, he spent the early part of his professional life, actually just a few hours north of us, as the award-winning legal editor for the Chicago Tribune. And when it came to matters of faith... Strobel said this. He says, I was an atheist. I thought the idea of an all-powerful creator of the universe was stupid. I mean, my background is in journalism and law. I tend to be a skeptical person. I need evidence before I believe anything. Well, maybe like Strobel, if you're honest with yourself, you too are a skeptic. And maybe more specifically, you have skepticism about the Christian faith. Uh, and then most specifically when it comes to those skepticisms, you have a struggle making the connection with Jesus, an otherwise human being, actually being the Son of God. The idea that he could actually be God in the flesh, somehow divine. And uh, if you don't have that personal struggle, I'm confident 
that someone you're close to, a friend, a family member, a neighbor, a coworker, has that just can't get there-ism when it comes to this idea that Jesus, yeah, maybe he was a good teacher and a good influence and done some good things, but the idea that he would actually be divine, actually be God in the flesh, is just too difficult to grasp. Or maybe then, as a result of that key question, you have other questions, or those close to you have other questions then that overflow from that one key question and all the rest. Well, I want to remind you that when it comes to these difficult questions and doubts of the opportunity that we have as a congregation and as a community tonight, here this evening, we are going to be joined by Mark Middleberg, not here, but actually at um, the uh, Kirkland Auditorium over on Millikan's campus. Uh, he's the author of Confident Faith, uh, his most recent bestseller, but also the author of The Reason Why, that book that we all received at the beginning of this series, if you were with us for that. And uh, he's been holding events like we are going to have tonight for over 30 years in ministry. And so he has a lot of expertise in this area. And uh, Pastor Wayne's going to be hosting him and hosting this conversation. Uh, but it's that opportunity for us to... You could say each week we've really, it's been a monologue. It's been a one-sided conversation where we've started the conversation on these various questions and doubts, which maybe just domino into further questions and doubts as these things tend to go. And then maybe those questions and doubts have been uh, maybe furthered in conversation in the, the small groups that many of you are a part of. But tonight is that opportunity where we want to tie up any loose ends that we can possibly get our hands on over the course of those two hours, uh, where, again, you can ask questions, and that's going to have an opportunity to form to express those, as well as even if you feel like you don't have a lot yourself, there's something very powerful about just watching the interplay between other people's doubts and questions and the answers and the responses that we can gain and grow in our faith as a result. Uh, and then I'll just add one other layer to this whole thing that I'm particularly excited about as uh, one of my responsibilities has been managing some of this room for doubt stuff amidst the 24 churches that have been working together. And it was, as, it was exciting as we prepared for all this, all the churches working together, that we, we, we hunkered down, we worked together. And then it was like on week one, then we just kind of went our separate ways. You know, we all go to our separate congregations and did our thing and been you know, working through the room for doubt. Well, tonight is the night where all 24 churches get to come together again, uh, where we get to celebrate what God is doing in our faith, not just as individual congregations, uh, but as, as, a, as, all, as we say, pitching for the same coach uh, for what we're doing here in our community. So we'll look forward to seeing you tonight along with a guest. That's what these little invitation cards are in for your, uh, in your program. They're not for you so much to put on your fridge, but for you to, to hand out and to bring someone with you tonight. So we'll look forward to seeing you tonight at 6 at Kirkland Auditorium. And so we'll further some questions and uh, conversations tonight, but today specifically, we want to look at the question that I would argue is potentially the most important question when it comes to any other questions and doubts, because when it comes to this question, it is the gateway that then allows us to understand and make sense of everything else when it comes to life and faith as it plays out together. And it is this question when it comes to um, some space for doubt, and that is this. Why do Christians say that Jesus is actually God's son, that he is actually God in the flesh? Why do Christians say that? I like as one skeptic put it, and I quote, he says, well, Jesus never even claimed to be the son of God. And in fact, if he knew you guys were all worshiping him as such, he'd roll over in his grave. Well, in response to this view, I'd have to say, first off, if you believe that Jesus rose from the grave, there's going to be some difficulty in him rolling over in it. Uh, 
But beyond that, maybe you, maybe you share this view yourself or, again, easily uh, know someone who struggles with this idea that Jesus could be God in the flesh. And so um, the first question we have to ask uh, in response to the skeptic is, is that accurate? Did Jesus actually even claim to be the Son of God? Or is that something that Christians have misunderstood and misapplied to who Jesus is for over two millennia now? So we'll examine, did Jesus even make that claim of himself or we misunderstood that? Secondly, if Jesus, in fact, did uh, claim to be the Son of God as Christians understand it, well then, what evidence is there then that he actually is who he claimed to be if this is who he claimed to be? And then third question, so what? So what if Jesus is the Son of God? Why does that matter today? Why does that matter for you? Why does it matter for me? Why does that matter for us? What are the implications then for us in our actual, what is Tuesday? Why does it look different? Because Jesus is the Son of God uh, in our lives. And so we're going to examine these three questions as they shape our understanding of the answer to that big question. Did Jesus, is he really the Son of God? And that's going to shape our time here this morning. So the first question we're going to look at is, first off, did Jesus even claim to be the Son of God, to be God in the flesh? And again, if you've been around church a long time, you may not have a struggle with that question any longer. Um, But as the skeptic voice, and as actually several outside of the Christian faith voice, um, for example, Muslims, uh, they would claim that Jesus never claimed to be the Son of God. According to Islam, Jesus was a prophet and never even claimed to be God's Son. However, Jesus, we do find, does in fact make this claim of himself, and he makes this claim very clear. We see this in scripture, and we see it in other historical documents, and so we're going to actually look at a few passages from scripture, which if you were here last week, Pastor Wayne made the case for the trustworthiness and the reliability of scripture, of which we now lean into, and we look at Jesus' words himself as recorded uh, in his gospels. And so we're going to look at Matthew chapter 16, and uh, all the verses today are going to be actually on the screen. Um, We're going to jump around quite a bit. Um, and I want you to get a paper cut. So uh, if you want to keep up, I, at the last service, the guy's like, I was actually a Bible Bowl champ, and so I tried to keep up. I'm like, go for it. So, all right. First one is Matthew chapter 16. Uh, Jesus has, in this setting, an exchange with his close followers, with his disciples. And Jesus asks his disciples, he says, who do the people say that I am? Who do the people say that the Son of Man is? And they replied, well, some say you're John the Baptist, Others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, or one of the other prophets. Okay, but what about you, Jesus asks. Who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter spoke up and he said, Well, you are the Messiah. You are the son of the living God. And Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And so we see here, Jesus claims to be, in response to Peter, yes, he is the Son of God. And that is affirmed, not by flesh and blood, not by humans, but as it says in verse 17, by God the Father himself. Now, in fairness... Looking at this verse, one of the objections that has been claimed to this particular passage over the years is something along the lines of, well, of course Jesus claimed to be a son of God because, well, we are all children of God. So really what we're seeing here is not actually that unique in Jesus. 
But I want to reveal to you in some other passages that this unique, this claim is actually unique in what Jesus is stating. Another passage in another gospel, the Gospel of John, a record of Jesus' life. In chapter 10, verse 30, Jesus is not talking to his close followers here, but actually to his opponents, those who are uh, against him, the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day. And Jesus makes this bold claim stating, I and the Father are one. Jesus says it straight up, that I and the Father are one. In the uh, original Greek, that word one here, Jesus would have been saying that he and the Father, we are the same nature. We are of the same essence. And it's because of this claim that Jesus makes to the Pharisees that they actually are attempting to stone him. They're attempting to kill him. Uh, And are they attempting to kill him because, well, he just claimed to be a child of God like we're all child of God's? No. That kind of claim doesn't get you killed. It's claiming to be God that gets you killed, and that's exactly what the Pharisees say. They say, no, we are, in verse 33, stoning you for blasphemy because you, a mere man, you claim to be God. You see, what's interesting about this interplay is that Jesus had ample opportunity to clear up any misunderstandings they may have had about who he was claiming to be, as any great teacher would have been able to do. He could have easily said, oh, whoa, 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 fellas, Let's, if we can just put those rocks down for a second. Did you think I was saying equality with God was what I was claiming? No, 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 no. Let me, let me clear up this misunderstanding. But he doesn't do that. Instead, he actually does quite the opposite. He actually reinforces again his claims and affirms correctly what they have understood, what he is claiming to be, that he is, in fact, the Son of God, true deity, equal in nature to God the Father himself. In fact, Jesus so much stood by this claim that in the end, it was this claim that was the reason he was crucified. It was the reason he was killed. It was at his very trial, at his pending death that we just celebrated in communion, pending his crucifixion where everything hung in the balance, where he could have lived or died. He had the opportunity to clarify that's not what he meant, that he wasn't actually saying he was the son of God. When the high priest asks him in Mark 14, 60, he says, okay, do you say, you're on trial for your life, do you say that you are the Messiah, the son of the blessed one? And with that one last opportunity, that one last get-out-of-jail-free card that Jesus could have played, he instead reinforces with full resolve, Mark 14, 61, I am. I am. I am the Son of the Blessed One. I am the Messiah. I am the one you will see uh, coming at the right hand of the Mighty One. I am the one you will see coming on the clouds of heaven. To which Jesus' listeners' response say it all. Refusing to believe his claim in verse 63, the high priest leading the trial tore his clothes at the horror of what he was hearing from Jesus. And he says, why do we need any other witnesses? You have all heard his blasphemy. What is your verdict? Guilty, guilty. They all say he deserves to die. And so to the first question, did Jesus actually claim to even be the son of God, to be God in the flesh? Absolutely. Absolutely he did, so much so that it was the reason he went to the cross. It was the reason he was crucified. And so to the first question, when it comes to Jesus Christ being God in the flesh, God's son, did he claim to be it? He did. But then the second question, in all fairness, is, well, okay, so maybe he claimed this, but what evidence do we now have that he actually was who he claimed 
to be. Because in fairness, any one of us right now could interrupt and say, well, I'm the son of God. Anyone could say they are the son of God. In fact, mental institutions are filled with those such as these. And so how do we know that we can trust that Jesus is who he claimed to be versus one who belongs among the um, uh, mentally insane? And so we look at some evidence of this as well. First, we have what is known as messianic prophecies. Messianic prophecies were specific prophecies throughout the Old Testament that uh, came long before Jesus that spoke to the future nature uh, and, the, and, the, and the nature of the events that would happen as to the coming Messiah, the Son of God, and who he would be. So these messianic prophecies we see being fulfilled completely in the person of Jesus Christ. And while there's dozens and dozens of these, I'll just name a few uh, just to make our case here this morning. Uh, first one would be that uh, in Micah 5.2, it was predicted hundreds of years prior that uh, the Messiah would come and be born in Bethlehem, which we see in the Christmas story did in fact take place. Uh, it also speaks to, uh, in the book of Isaiah, how Jesus would die as a substitute for our sins. Uh, that was 700 years prior in Isaiah 53. And it's interesting, this, uh, the specificity in which the nature of Jesus' death was described, as it says in chapter 53, that, quote, he was pierced, he would be pierced for our iniquities. Now, what's unique about that, when it talks about the piercing of Jesus, is that crucifixion had not yet even been invented. And so you have this very specific detail as to the nature of how Jesus would die before that understanding of death and execution had even been invented. And so that speaks to the coming nature of Jesus. And then beyond that, also in Isaiah, we talk about, uh, we see the nature of what the Messiah would be, of who he would be, and that is the question of today. Was he divine when he would come? And so Isaiah 7.14 says, uh, again, these are some other passages that surround Christmas. It says, the Lord himself will give you a sign that the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and he will be called Emmanuel. And so we see that there's two happening in this. First, there's the virgin birth, which was foretold and fulfilled in Matthew chapter 1. And then the second, that this son would be born, he would be called Emmanuel. And the word Emmanuel means God with us, that God would be with us. Uh, further on Jesus' divinity, uh, Isaiah 9, 6, it says, For unto us a child is born, a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And so again, hundreds of years prior to Jesus' arrival, the nature of his divinity was already spoken to, that he would be called Mighty God. Mighty God before he even showed up on the planet. And so we see this evidence of who Jesus was to be in those messianic prophecies prior to even his arrival. But then upon his arrival, upon leaving his heavenly place uh, to come among us, that first sacrifice that Jesus made to come among us, we see in his life further evidence that he was in fact divine, that he was God's son. And that first off, he lived a sinless life. We see evidence in Jesus living a sinless life and that if God is holy, which he is, well then Jesus, as God's son, would have to prove it by living a life that was perfectly holy. He'd have to live a life completely free from sin. And Jesus' enemies knew this. Uh, the religious leaders knew this uh, was a, a stipulation in who the Messiah was supposed to be. And so, naturally, they would follow Jesus around everywhere, doing everything they could to try to capture him or trap him in some sort of character flaw, moral or ethical inconsistency, just any little slip-up that they could um, 
proved Jesus not to be who he claimed to be. Uh, but of course, they were never able to find any of these defects, any of these weaknesses. Instead, they actually paid false witnesses to try to invent and tell stories to accuse Jesus of wrongdoing, which we see taking place in the Gospels. And knowing as they did that none of it was true, it all comes to a head in chapter 8 of John when Jesus finally confronts them and says, okay, so given all your attempts, quote, can any of you now prove me guilty of any sin? To which, of course, they could not. You see, and so when we look at Jesus' sinless life and we contrast that, actually, as we think about other world religions and, and topics that we'll look at here in the next couple of weeks, um, in comparison to other religious leaders like Muhammad and Buddha, ironically, both of them openly admitted their own sinfulness, their own need, ironically, to be forgiven by God. And so it is only Jesus who lived that perfect, sinless life that backed up his holy and perfect and divine nature, even though tempted, was never overcome by any of it. Okay, so we see messianic prophecies pointing to who Jesus was. We see a sinless life. And then also during his life, thirdly, we have evidence of who Jesus is and his divine nature by the miracles he performed. From walking on water to healing the sick to raising the dead, Jesus pointed to these acts not as ends in and of themselves. They were not the point, but really they were always evidences pointing him to this question we're trying to answer today, the divinity of who Jesus is. And so looking again at the book of John in chapter 10 and verse 37 through 38, uh, Jesus told his listeners that when it came to these miracles, he said, do not believe me unless I am actually doing the works of my father, which is what he was doing in the miracles. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and understand that, and here it is again, that the Father is in me and that I am in the Father, that we are one. And so over and over and over again, Jesus performs these miraculous signs. Again, not as ends of themselves or to impress people or to be the point, but to direct them to the point, which is that he was, in fact, God's son, true divinity, God in the flesh. But even as we look at these miracles, we have to recognize that there is one miracle that stands above them all. It is the miracle you could claim to which Jesus came to perform, and that is Jesus' own resurrection from the dead. Jesus came to die and to rise to new life that we might be given a new life as well. Um, in fact, Jesus pointed to his own resurrection as the ultimate evidence of who he would be. As he said it this way, he talks about the sign of the prophet Jonah. He says in Matthew chapter 12, For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth before rising again. And so that story of Jonah is from the Old Testament, and again, prophetic in what Jesus would do in dying being buried and rising from the dead. And so that was Jesus' ultimate proof that he was, in fact, who he claimed to be, God in the flesh. In fact, the resurrection is so ultimate that the Apostle Paul later, as he was writing letters to the church as what it meant to follow this Jesus, he says it this way in 1 Corinthians 15, 17, that when it comes to Jesus' divinity and the resurrection, quote, if Christ has not been raised, say Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile because you are still in your sins. In other words, and this is so important, if you hear today, if you recognize, if you, if you don't accept that Jesus Christ 
is in fact the Son of God who died and rose three days later, then in the long run, all of this is for nothing. This is all futile. Because, and I've, I've actually heard this from those of you, who act, from some who attend our church, that this idea that, you know, you come to church and, you know, even if Jesus isn't the Son of God, if you can't get there, you know, he's still a good example to follow. It's still good for my kids, you know, to come in here and it's still good for us to be in church and do some good in the world. To make that claim, to live on the fence, is ludicrous. Because think about this. If Jesus, who we recognize, did in fact claim to be the Son of God, but actually isn't, that is nobody to be followed. Because he is either a great deceiver, and he tricked us all, which means he is not someone to be trusted and followed, or he is greatly disturbed. And again, belongs in a mental institution for claiming these claims. And again, not someone to be followed. See, that's why when it comes to this topic, there is no middle ground. There is no, ah, you know, Jesus was a good teacher, he's a good prophet, someone who could give us some good lessons for life. It is all or nothing. Because when it comes to this particular doubt, that's why we have to process this one. We have to work through this one because if we don't get to the place where we can accept that Jesus Christ is in fact the Son of God who died and rose again for us, then all the rest is a waste of time. And so we have to work through this one. We have to get through the other side. And so recognizing here today as we talk about Jesus' divinity with so much riding, particularly on the resurrection, I want to take a moment just to give you three quick evidences specifically of the resurrection when it comes to Jesus Christ's divinity. And so I'll try to do these real quick and uh, to help us uh, learn them. They all begin with the letter E because we're cheesy like that. And uh, as I say around here, I always say, seize the cheese because... <laughs> As dorky as it is, it does help us remember important stuff. So with that, uh, the first E as it relates to making a case for the actual resurrection of Jesus Christ. Number one, we recognize that Jesus' tomb was in fact empty. It was in fact empty. Uh, starting with the women who first visited the tomb and then the men who followed soon after, the disciples uh, universally agreed, even though they didn't even understand what was happening. They wouldn't even say it was a resurrection. They didn't know what was happening, but they all would agree Jesus was not there. The tomb was empty. And what's interesting is that Jesus' enemies actually concluded the same thing. It wasn't like there was any debate as to whether or not the tomb was empty. Um, instead, actually, what the authorities chose to do upon the empty tomb was to make up a story. In fact, they bribed the guards who were supposed to be guarding the tomb to state this. It says in Matthew 28, 13, to quote, uh, his disciples, this is what the guards are supposed to say, his disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. Now, and I, I know I made fun of them, but you, you read that, and there's already some obvious holes in this case that they're trying to make. Because first of all, if the guards had really been asleep, then it's pretty clear that they would not have been able to identify who was stealing the body because in their own words, they were asleep. And so that was a little bit problematic. And then from there, let's say the guards then were awake and they did see what happened. It's reasonable to expect that they would have at least maybe done something to try to stop them, to arrest them, to communicate to the religious leaders that this is what happened. Uh, but clearly, Jesus' own disciples, um, the bad guys, the good guys, nobody knew how to explain it. Uh, but what this does do, it does confirm the very first evidence that everyone agreed, good guys and bad guys, Jesus was not in that tomb, that it was in fact empty. And then from there, 
upon the empty tomb, our second E, is that Jesus was then seen after the resurrection by many eyewitnesses. Lots of eyewitnesses uh, experienced Jesus in the flesh after that third day. Um, Again, even though the tomb was empty, they didn't have any idea of why it was. But in Luke 24, we see that they believed in the resurrection because they saw him, the disciples did. They talked with him. We even have several accounts of them eating together because Jesus was back in the flesh again uh, for 40 days before ascending into heaven. So we see that the tomb was obviously empty. There were many eyewitness accounts, over 500, which we're going to see in a verse here in a second, and that the accounts of the empty tomb and the accounts of these eyewitnesses were all, this is our third E, they were all accounted for very early. Very early. Uh, and Pastor Wayne talked a little bit last week about understanding history and the duration and, and what can be trusted in that. And um, this report, that, this creed that uh, was you know, passed orally and then written down is understood to be captured within just um, a few months of Jesus' resurrection. This is what was being passed around and then recorded within just a few months. The Apostle Paul writing to the churches, uh, he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he says, for what I received... Okay, so this few-month-old report that's been passed on and passed on, he says, from what I've received, he's now spreading it. He's passing it on. He says, I now pass on to you of first importance. This is what matters most when it comes to the Christian faith, that Jesus Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. And then we see the accounts of the eyewitnesses. And then he appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve. And then he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and the sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have now fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles. And so we see in this extremely early testimony, it affirms what has been well known now since that very first Easter Sunday by Christians for 2,000 years. And thus, it's their confidence at that time, along with the reasons that persuaded them, that now assures us 2,000 years later as well of this foundational linchpin reality of the Christian faith that Jesus Christ is, in fact, divine and did, in fact, rise from the dead that we, too, might have that new life. And so we've we've taken on this tough question. We've identified that when it comes to the question, was Jesus really the Son of God? First off, he did identify himself as such. And then secondly, we have several evidences to back up that claim. But now, the third question, the one that's most personal to us, so what? What does Jesus being the Son of God then actually have to do with us? Why does it even matter for us today that we would spend this kind of time and energy looking at it? Well, as I've been hinting at throughout our time together, it matters because quite frankly, it changes everything. It is the linchpin faith understanding that is the gateway to all other things that we do and live and practice as followers of Jesus Christ. Uh, In fact, as we started our time together uh, this morning, we talked about some comments from uh, one-time atheist Lee Strobel uh, regarding, again, his thoughts on the absurdity of the idea of Jesus being God in the flesh, uh, the Christian faith, and how as a legal journalist, if he's going to believe anything, he's going to need a great deal of evidence. Well, Strobel pursued that very evidence, and he committed himself 
to then a full investigation as to whether there was any credibility uh, in the Christian faith, and frankly, a study was about any other world faith system for that matter. And Strobel says this in conclusion. He says, I did that for a year and nine months until November the 8th of 1981. And on that day, I realized that in light of the torrent of evidence flowing in the direction of the truth of Christianity, and I love this line, it would require more faith for me to maintain my atheism than to actually become a Christian. Because to be an atheist, I would have had to swim upstream against that torrent of evidence pointing toward the truth of Jesus Christ, and I just couldn't do that. I was trained in journalism and law to respond to truth. And so on that day, I received Jesus Christ as my forgiver and as my leader, and my life began to change. My values, my character, the purpose of my life all began to be transformed in a way that as I look back, I can't imagine staying on the path that I was on compared to this, compared to the adventure, the fulfillment, and the joy of following Jesus Christ. Lee Strobel He acknowledged that Jesus is, in fact, the Son of God who died for our sins, rose from the dead, and gave his life over to him. And what's cool for us today is it's that same personality, Lee Strobel, in partnership with Mark Middleberg, who we're going to hear from tonight, who worked together with us as a church and then with all the other congregations to formulate this very series we're working through right now. It was he who helped us understand what it is that as a former doubter and skeptic himself to best process and work through the doubts and the skepticism that we face in our own day. And so um, that's exciting for us. And then with that also, um, it really flows out of a book he wrote very shortly after his investigation. Uh, again, if you've been around church, you, you're familiar with it because it's, it's already a classic. And that is a book called The Case for Christ. Uh, and, and in it, Um, He gives us reminders now for many of us, or maybe for the first time, the implications, that last question, what does this have to do with us, that Jesus Christ would be the Son of God? Implications for his life that transformed his life on that November 8th of 1981, for me that transformed my life on May 16th of 1996, and that for you, if it hasn't already, can transform your life, transform your eternity today, October 4th, 2015. And so I'm going to um, capture some of these briefly, and I would just ask that you would keep your heart and your mind open to the Holy Spirit as to which of these implications God is most wanting to get your attention with here today as you leave. And so these are some of the realities that if to the big question, if Jesus is God's son and the answer is yes, well then when it comes to these teachings that otherwise you might say, oh, these are good teachings, they're not just good teachings. They are actually divine and godly insights that we can then confidently build our life on because we know it comes from the one who created us. From there, if Jesus then sets the standard for morality, the way in which we approach the living of our lives, well then we can also build our life confidently on the way in which he tells us to live our lives because in contrast, we're The only other option is the ever-shifting, fickle sands of the world that we live in. And so we don't want to base our life on that. We want to base it on God's ways and uh, for our lives. Also, know this, if Jesus did rise from the dead, he's still alive today. And he's alive, waiting, and and active in our lives. And so he says we can access him through uh, not requirement of prayer, but the gift of prayer. That we can actually go to God and that he responds as we talk to him in prayer. 
Uh, If Jesus is God's son, he has divine power, then know that he also has that supernatural ability, not just to give you guidance for life from the outside in. It's not behavior modification, but by the power of his Holy Spirit, which he left us when he went back to heaven, is God's work inside of us. That is, Strobel talked about, that I've experienced in my life, that many of you have experienced, actually supernaturally transforms us from the inside out rather than from the outside in. And know that if in your life you are struggling with pain or suffering or any kind of uh, pain in your life, that we could be comforted by the one it says in Hebrews who faced every temptation and pain and still overcame it. And so we can lean into God, a God who, because of Jesus Christ's pain and suffering in the world, knows what it's like to be human. And we can go to him confidently that he will bring us supernatural comfort and peace in the midst of our challenging times. And with sin, when it comes to sin, again, he also was tempted in every way. So if you have sin in your life, he can help you to overcome those temptations as he did in his earthly life as well. And so all of this, if Jesus Christ is divine, all starts, biggest question, most important answer, that if Jesus Christ is the Son of God, rose from the dead to new life, well, then that same gift of new life is available to you as well. And if you've been sitting here maybe weeks, maybe months, saying, yeah, church is a good thing. Yeah, the teachings are good. It's great for my kids. But you've been sitting on the fence as to whether or not you're going to accept that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and place your faith in him. I would invite you, October 4th, 2015, is the day that you can tip forward. Because we all have doubts and questions. I'm chief of them. But what I've chosen is that even in the midst of being on the fence with certain questions and certain doubts, rather than live a life that tips towards unbelief and just waiting for all the 100% evidence to, to get me there, which will never be there, I've chosen to tip forward over the fence, to say, okay, I'm gonna take a step forward in faith And I have trusted God ever since to help me process and work through those doubts in growing in faith rather than be further paralyzed in not accepting it. And so today's the day. Don't just sit in church. Don't just sit here saying it's good teachings because otherwise, again, he's either a lunatic, he's a liar, he is not the son of God, or he is. And so I'd encourage you, don't walk out today without making that decision. So these are all things that are true. And then again, most importantly, if Jesus Christ is the son of God, Um, who came for us, then the most important thing that we can all do right now is recognize that in our lives, he's worthy to be worshiped. And so that's how we're going to seal our time together. And so as we do that, I invite you to stand with me. And uh, as we worship, um, know that uh, there's going to be some people here at the front of the room who, uh, again, because he's alive and listening to us today, there's going to be some people at the front of the room who would be honored to pray with you about any of these issues that might have stirred up within you. If you're going through difficult times, the great comforter wants to be there for you. If you have a difficult decision, we don't have just good advice. We have um, the creator of the universe who can guide you in those decisions for your life. If you have a sin in your life that you just can't overcome, confess that and let the one who overcame every temptation help you to supernaturally come over those temptations. And then most importantly, if you have not tipped over that fence, if you have not said, okay, I am going to believe and receive Jesus Christ as my Savior and Lord, Don't leave here today having not made that decision. Because if you haven't, as Paul said, you are still in your sins and your faith is non-existent. You haven't received Jesus Christ. And so have that conversation today before you leave this place. And so with that, let me pray for you in that regard. Father, given this topic today, the gift that you, as we needle out every fine detail, we thank you for the evidence that you gave us that you did in fact send your son for us. 
Uh, but getting past that, most importantly, um, we want to move to um, an attitude of gratitude, of recognizing the sacrifice you made, that you made the sacrifice to send your son because you loved us so much. How could we say that you don't love us if you would give your only son for us, even though we don't always understand all of how that works? We want to accept it as true, accept your son as true. And so may we, out of the implications that you would give your son, both to this world and then to death and then to new life, may we live in that new life. In all the implications mentioned, And most importantly, if there's one among us, if there's several among us today who have not made that decision to make you Lord of their lives, forgive of their sin, that they might have that new life led by you supernaturally in this world and for all of eternity. May may you move their feet of stone, otherwise stuck to those pews, to the front of this room to have that conversation, to have that prayer and get that journey started today. We ask this by the power of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name.